right, everybody. Uh, this week, I'm very excited to uh, tell you about uh, our guest this week. I want to welcome you to Tricky Kid Radio. Uh, this week, my co-host is uh, the good, my good friend, Rich Simmons. What is going down? Glad that you're back. Uh, we missed you last week there, Rich. I was, I was flying solo last week, so I'm glad that you're with us this week. Cool. Uh, so... Uh, What's going on here? Oh, okay. I'll edit that out. <laughs> anyway, uh, during the end of process, thank you. Okay. So, um, anyway, so we missed you last week. And uh, so, anyway, so this week, what, what reason why I'm very, very, very excited is that to know me is to know that I'm a huge Van Halen fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And so, there, you, if you're a Van Halen fan, or even if you're just a fan of rock and roll and in general, you may have been hearing there's a great buzz going around about a book called Van Halen Rising. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been everywhere. And I had the opportunity uh, to interview uh, its author, this awesome, awesome guy, uh, Greg Renoff. And I believe that he finished the book uh, as early back as I think he finished it in March. Uh, and it landed in my hands in uh, in July, uh, and then I, we were able to do the interview um, a few weeks ago and everything else, and the book is out October the 10th. Uh, we had a great time. Um, cool. And so I'm very excited to bring you guys uh, the, the Van Halen Rising story with Greg Renoff before it's released, and I'm telling you something, you guys are really going to want to pick this up. Uh, Rich, you're a Van Halen fan, aren't you? Who isn't? That's right. That's right. Okay, now, of course, the, of course, the age-old question is, of course, you know, David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar. I'm a Dave all well, the way. You probably wouldn't be here or allowed in the studio if, uh, if, if, if you gave any other right, answer right. there. So, uh, okay, now... One thing is, well, it's, it's kind of funny, is that I'm actually going to be seeing the Van Halen tour, awesome. the current Van Halen tour, tonight. Very cool. Uh, I was hoping to go ahead and actually see the tour before this episode aired so we could talk about it, but I think that Greg and I are going to do a part two and okay. everything else. And so, uh, and I've heard great things, but I also won't allow myself to hear too much because I hate spoilers. Right. You know, right. you know people... I'll, I'll take this time to kind of bitch for a second about how you you, ha- you have that person that like goes to a concert and then like they post the set list. Oh yeah. Or they even look at the set list before they go. Never, Why would you never, do that? Never done it. Why would you do that? <laughs> I'll take a set list after the show. Yeah, and maybe come <laughs> as a momentum. Yeah. Especially especially if, it, if it's a thing where like you know it switches from night to night. That's kind of interesting to compare. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But when it's a, a big big show like Rush or Aerosmith or. Or of course Van Halen, it's going to be the same. It's going to be the same. Right, set yeah. List. So you get a lot. And so see. why would isn't the whole point to be surprised? Uh, that's what I So think. I haven't been able to watch any of the videos or even or kind of kind of put my fingers in my ears as it were because people are all the way going. Oh my God, they're playing all this. I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't want to know that mm-hmm. yet. Uh, so I am beyond excited to um, to be seeing Van Halen this evening and seeing the tour. Like I said, I've heard great things now. Uh, this isn't any sort of news, but you, uh, the tour didn't get off to quite the best start, or at least in terms of promotion. Right. Uh, did you see the Jimmy Kimmel thing? I did see that. Uh, it was something where, you know, looked like it started off pretty good. I mean, Dave was out there looking good, looking yeah, fit, yeah, yeah. twirling his baton, and then a disaster struck. <laughs> and, and and Dave, God, golly, we're not uh, by any means. Uh, <laughs> Well, maybe we are, but I, um, I just—it's just—isn't it just the baffling dysfunction that has just haunted this band? It, it seems just, like it. it doesn't end; it right, never ends. Right. 
If you don't know what we're talking about, uh, Van Halen is on tour this uh, this summer. Uh, it's them right there, by the way. The big <laughs> uh, they're on tour uh, because they're promoting uh, the very first Van Halen live record with with David Lee. Mm-hmm. Now, I am a disciple of David Lee. I am I quote him like scripture. He is my my Lord and my Savior. Uh, but you know, I know that it's kind of. You know, I don't want to say controversial, but you're not going to see Van Halen with David Lee to hear the most pristine vocal delivery. You're just kind of you'll not, see the show. And not that that's any excuse, but it's like David Lee just kind of transcends that. And right. not that he gets a pass, but it's just like he's just so awesome that right. it's like you're kind of there to see uh, just him and just being this most, mani- right. in my opinion, top three. Frontman of all time, and he's right there with people of great voice, like right. Freddie, like Freddie Mercury, sure, sure. or people not so of great voice, like Iggy Pop. Right. It's like when you go to Iggy Pop, you're not complaining about, oh, he didn't really hit that high C. Nope. You're just like, that was the <laughs> Sorry, that Pop. was the greatest shit I've ever, I've ever seen. <laughs> right. My, I talked about this a little bit in the interview. My first concert ever was David Lee Roth's oh. very first solo tour. Awesome, very cool uh, on the Eat 'Em and Smile tour, and it was the it was the moon landing. I mean, it was. Nice. It was, and his band at the time was like it was like Led Zeppelin or something. He yeah. had Steve Vai on guitar, right, right. Greg Bissonette on drums, cool, and F- Billy Sheehan like the bass player. So I mean, it was just like I mean, obviously my my eleven year old self really wasn't able to appreciate the musicality. Sure, I just but wanted you were there. Wanted, awesome. wanted to see it in a great memory. But uh, to get back on track here, so anyway, so yeah, so they're, they they have a live album called Van Halen Live. And uh, so they appeared on Jimmy Kimmel to promote it. Mm-hmm. And this was, I mean, the, the, the build up to this was fantastic. I mean, they didn't do their usual, you know, talk show thing. They had blocked out all of Hollywood no, Boulevard. Really cool. Like, you know, if you saw the video, you know, mm-hmm. it was like 7,000 people were there. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and it was just such a big, big, awesome thing because it, it just, it was great to see like the mighty Van Halen. That was the mm-hmm. biggest problem with Sammy Hagar. He had the notes, but it just didn't have the right. the mighty part of the Van Halen. Yeah, and so it really had that feel. It didn't even feel like you know, an old band trying to reclaim it. it just it was just like holy shit, yeah, this yeah. is Van Halen. And you know, David likes to come out and put on a big show, and he had this. You know, he's really into uh, to. You know Taekwondo and all types of martial arts, and mm-hmm. and he comes out, man, and with this twirling—I don't know—was it a, of a baton or what it was? It was big, but it yeah, looked a little was, too big. Yeah, in fact, if it was like a couple inches shorter, it would have been an issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, maybe he was overreaching there, but yeah, uh, he's you know size queen and all that. God, really? I can't believe we're making fun of the greatest frontman of all time, David. We love you, and I can't wait to see you kick so much ass tonight. Uh, anyway, so he comes out with this baton thing, and it looks badass. And you saw it; it just sliced his just nose, barely clipped him. Yeah, and what a total badass! Yeah, that he runs off stage, says, "Doc, fix me up," and he goes back out and, and does it. Well, anyway, so a lot of people were thinking, "Well, gosh, that combined with you know the one reasons why there had never been a Van Halen live record with David Lee, because again." Not the greatest live sure, vocal delivery, sure. but again, that's hasn't ever really been the point. Right. So uh, people were kind of like, "Well, gosh, you know, what would those? Why would that album inspire anybody to want to go see this tour? And why would? And based upon the Jimmy Kimmel thing, what's you know, why am I gonna? Oh, but apparently, it's selling out and nice. it's kicking ass, and I've heard nothing but great things, and so I'm very, very excited. So. 
Uh, so the song of the week we're going to do is I uh, is off the Van Halen live record. I was wanting, I was, I was thinking about introducing a, you know, one of the newer songs just mm-hmm. instead of doing the old hat, but uh, I couldn't resist because it's my favorite Van Halen song of all time. This is Romeo Delight from Van Halen Live, and after that, we'll come back with uh, with Greg Rinoff and Van Halen Rising. Okay.
One thing before we continue, because my Japanese isn't very good, but my teacher is here, and I want to say, So there you go. I mean, so I mean, that wasn't that bad, was it? The no, review no, to light. Yeah, not at all. I mean, again, like I said, you're not really there to hear the high C, are you? You yeah. know what I mean? You really want to to uh, see him do his thing, which absolutely. Uh, and he's got all these crazy yakuza looking. Uh, I don't want to sound un- uninformed or uneducated, but he has these this Japanese bodysuit tattoos, sure, which sure. you've seen before, yeah. and everything else. And so it's uh, it's a different looking David Lee, absolutely. but it's still David Lee Roth. Okay, so coming up, uh, our our main feature interview again is Greg Rinoff's Van Halen Rising. It's uh, it's called Halleck's Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. And what makes this so unique and stand out? Because you know you probably have seen, uh, uh, you know, you can probably go to your local book store mm-hmm. and see seven or eight bands mm-hmm. or sorry books about Van Halen. But reason where this stands alone, other than it's just insanely perfectly well researched. Yeah. Is that it covers the early like Van Halen Rising. It covers that seventy two to seventy eight. And you know, I get I can sit here and talk like an authoritarian about seventy eight to eighty four Van mm-hmm, Halen. Mm-hmm. But even I and most people, I don't know why. It's just shrouded in either secrecy or they're just you know, it's you know, obviously way, way pre internet, pre rock magazine mm-hmm. in the eighties. It's just, it's all, you know, for the most part before this book is hearsay. And what this book really does, it it took Greg, uh, which you'll hear in the interview, six years to research this. Hmm. 
and it really puts it all together to really, uh, you know, and he obviously, he, you know, he makes an argument about how a Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal. Right. Uh, I can't uh, stress it enough. You guys have got to pick up this 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 book. It comes out again uh, on October the tenth on ECW Press. Um, there's all there's going to be a, a huge party I'll be talking about and giving directions uh, or at least some information about out in Pasadena where Van Halen is from on David Lee Roth's birthday by the way which is October the tenth uh, after the interview. So again, this is Greg Renoff with Van Halen Rising. Okay. All right, everybody. Uh, welcome to this week of Tricky Kid Radio with Roy Turner. I'm your host. Uh, very, very, very excited about about this week's guest. Uh, right in front of me, live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I'm sitting across from author Greg Rinoff, who has written a book, Van Halen Rising. And as any fan of the show knows that I'm a monstrous Van Halen fan. And uh, the book comes out in October. And we're so happy to have Greg here today to talk about Van Halen Rising, how a South Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal. Thank you, Greg. Welcome. Hey, hey Roy. Thanks. It's really great to be here with you. Thanks for coming to Tulsa. Thank you so much. You know, it was funny because, uh, you know, we, as we talked about, you know, want to talk to you for a while because you know you and I have been kind of Twitter buddies mm-hmm. uh, for wow a couple of months now and everything else. So I'm glad that you know to be doing this you know in person instead of over the phone or skyping or whatever. So let's get right into it. Okay, so obviously you would have to be a big Van Halen fan. You weren't assigned to this book. It wasn't like someone. You are a Van Halen fan. After reading the book, for, for those that are listening, it is one of the most well researched. One of the most. It's almost like it's not propaganda, but it is a love letter for sure. It's written by somebody that truly is fascinated by the history of this band. And the main thing is well about it was it's the undocumented part of it. Mm-hmm. It kind of almost ends when the first album comes out. Right. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. So um yeah, I grew up in uh, New Jersey, and like a lot of New Jersey kids, I was really into uh, heavy metal music. It was either you were a Grateful Dead fan or a heavy metal fan in high school, pretty much. <laughs> And um, I saw Van Halen live in 1984. I had heard Jump on the radio and then saw it on MTV, and I was able to scout a ticket at school. It was sort of a Fast Times moment where I got this kid to scout me a ticket at school, and I went to the show, and uh, I was pretty young. I was about 15 at the time, and it just changed my whole outlook on what music could be. It was just so big. Um, Eddie's guitar playing was so amazing. David Lee Roth seemed like uh, the coolest guy you would ever possibly come across. Um, Give us an idea of what year around this time yeah. when you discovered the band. So in 1984, and yeah. so yeah, okay. like, like a lot of people, because that was their most commercially successful right. At the time, right? Right. Um, I had had a pretty good introduction to rock music before then, but no one had ever talked to me about Van Halen, and so that was something that when I went to see them, and the stage was just so huge, and it was the lights and the sound, it was just so over the top. Became a massive fan, and it turned out I. Uh, ended up uh, becoming a historian. So I went to grad school, got a PhD in history. And, I, you know, I always kept my love for the band um, close to heart. Huge fan, saw them numerous times. And, uh, you know, later after I had been an academic historian for a few years, for about eight or nine years and working as a professor, um, I sort of really became increasingly irked about the fact that no one had done any work on the band's early years. Um, and as a fan, that's what drew me too, because I I know these stories, and I was right. not not to challenge you, but I was kind of like, okay, 
I want to hear a story that I haven't heard a million times, sure. and I'm I'm sure. into it. So there's sure. a lot of stories other than the brown M and M's that I that I know. That's it. And the book, I got to tell you, you, for listeners out there, you're not going to believe how much great stuff. So please continue with yeah, that. Yeah, I mean that was the thing for me was that as a fan and as a historian, I sort of grown tired of the same stories over and over again. That's a. And then B, I knew from the bits and pieces I had learned from reading every interview by David right, Hamlin, right. every David Roth interview, that these guys had worked in Pasadena and around Los Angeles together for some years. It turns out, you know, four plus years as an unsigned band. Um, and even before that, before they teamed up, as you see in the book, I go all the yes. way back to the you know, the Mammoth and Genesis, which is the early versions of Van Halen, then Red Ball Jet, which was David Lee Roth's pre-Van right. Halen band. And so these guys were playing and, and making music and making trouble in Pasadena for years. And so I just started, uh, at one point, started to do a little bit of research. I ended up getting in touch with a guy who um, was a club owner in a town called Van Nuys, California. And it turns out that his club, which was called the Rock Corporation, was the uh, pioneer of the wet t-shirt contest in Los Angeles. <laughs> so there had been wet t-shirt contests before, but there had never been one actually in a bar where you would actually go into the bar and um, this would happen on stage. And it turns out that Van Halen was there at the first go-rounds of those wet t-shirt contests. And so when I heard that story from him... You know, that was sort of a real spark for me. I said, wow, there's, this is, there's a lot more to this. I ended up talking to a lot of people from Pasadena. I interviewed 230. I lost count after 230 people, but I was more than half of those were people who lived in and around Pasadena. And so it just meant it to be a situation where it was just I would talk to one person, and they'd say, hey, you should talk to my friend Steve. Steve had a backyard party It would just kind of snowball from there. Right, right. And so I ended up talking to a... Um, Two, two of the parties in there that I do in great detail. Uh, one was thrown by three sim- uh, siblings called the Imler family in Pasadena. Yes, I and, love uh, that story. Yeah, I love a whole that chapter story. about that. And so, you know, in talking to the three siblings and then talking to people who were there, I was able to really put together this. And I said, you know, this is sort of like the Us Festival for Van Halen at the time in yeah. 1974. Sure, uh, sure. You know, the police were pissed off. The neighbors were pissed off. Um, you know, the, that party in particular in 1974 the riot it was a response by riot police they came in riot gear and threw those kids out of the backyard and so very you know, punk rock which you don't very, really equate yeah. with them it's a very DIY work ethic you know and so yeah and so um, worked my way up the food chain um, eventually got to interview Michael Anthony which was a great great experience for me super guy um, got to interview Ted Templeman who as everyone knows produced their first of six course. records Don Landy I spoke to him who was the engineer mm-hmm. right uh, Marshall Burrell, who managed them in 1977 through 1978. Right. Um, and so I was able to... Um, Pete Angelus, who was David Lee Ross' partner in crime for years. Yeah, I remember and, you talking about that in the right, book as well. And, um, and so in talking to the, you know sort of the people who we don't know the names of, and then some of the um, A-listers who were Van Halen, uh, former members of Van Halen like Michael Anthony, or then um, people who were absolutely essential to their success, like Ted Templeman, in my right. estimation. Okay. Um, it let me put the whole... Um, story together and so it just was something that at some point even when I was first starting I realized if I don't write this book no one else is going to write it and that was it I just thought I had the means to do it and wanted to do it but where where, where did the story come from like okay like for example like okay you've done all these interviews you love Van Halen you've got it you know for any writer you, you at what point because what I was surprised by when I heard about the book firsthand uh, was wow someone's finally going to document like you said if you didn't write it nobody else would someone's going to document the early years of Van Halen 
but the whole how a Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal. And, you know, not to give any spoilers away, I will say this just real fast for those who are listening early on. There will be no spoilers about what the set list is for the current Van Halen tour, so you can keep on listening now. Uh, but the early part of this book, even in the introduction, mm-hmm. almost creates an argument about how it saved heavy metal. That was a part that I was not anticipating. But not only do you make a convincing argument, but it's it's absolutely it's true. It's absolutely true. So my question for you is: At what point did the story arc begin to appear? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the the argument actually came after the story. Um, the story arc for me was it's sort of as you can imagine like a puzzle with pieces laying on the table, and as you start to fill in more and more pieces. For instance, I'll give you one example. One of the things that really was a big um, struggle for me was trying to figure out when Van Halen got signed. Okay. In the book, I don't think we should spoil that, but in the book, yeah, I, I yeah. lay out I love that the chapter, shows so don't spoil when that happened. This is, a, this is something that had been talked about numerous times by David Lee Roth, Eddie Van Halen, when Ted Templeman and Mo Austin walk into the Starwood Club in Hollywood and sign the band. Right. And so if you read Wikipedia or you read other accounts of Van Halen's early years... Um, you'd hear May 1977. You'd hear a whole, I mean, September, all these dates. And when I finally found um, a newspaper mention of this, I remember I was in the library um, and I put my hands in the air. I'm sure the other people around the microphone machines thought I was insane, but I realized I'd finally figured out when they got signed. So for me, things like that started to put the pieces in place because okay. it's, it was important for trying to understand the arc of the band's success to be able to have some of these big landmark things nailed down. Okay. Um, you know, clearly in a book like this, you, you're dealing with a lot of things that are lost. I'm sure there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of backyard parties we'll never know anything about. That's right. The flyers are right. long gone. The, the people there were too screwed up to remember or tell about it today. But when you start to think about things like that, their first gig that they played all original songs... That took place at a club called the Golden West Ballroom in 1976. They opened up for UFO. That was a big, yeah. a big event in Van Halen's history because they decided, look, we're not going to be a cover band anymore. We're not going to do Casey and Sunshine Band songs right. anymore. Right. I mean, you know, maybe on a one-off, but we are going to make it or not make it on the basis of the songs that we write as a band, like any band that's trying sure. to make it. You have to write original material. So when that stuff started to appear, and I was able to sort of fill in the holes, I could sort of begin to to um, Tell that story. Now, the argument for me kind of came after the fact. I really, I think it had always been um, kind of talked about the fact that Van Halen was very important in the late seventies to keeping Hard Rock alive. I don't think that is particularly um, Oops, new. Just, just, just it shut off again here. Hang on one second here. We're going to pause here because it's okay. We're still live. Good. Sorry, I can edit that up. Okay. Good. Okay. Sorry. I'll start so, back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Casey and Sunshine Band were not going to play that kind of music anymore. Go ahead. Yeah, and so, you know, they decided not to do covers anymore. Um, you know, and then deciding not to do covers. I'm so sorry, the power just went out for whenever you did that. That's why I had to start you over. No, no, no I lost my train of thought. Uh, and that's why I'm, I'm so sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. I'm just trying to think what I was saying. What were we talking about? You were talking about the importance of the late 70s. Oh, they yeah, they yeah, decided the we're not playing that stuff anymore. Uh, about the argument of the book. Okay. Yeah, okay. Right, sorry. Okay, um, and so the argument came after the fact, after I sort of filled in those things, um, figured out when they got signed and sort of what the big linchpin events were in the band's early history. Um, you know, I, I think we've heard this, this said before that Van Halen was extremely important in a time of disco and that punk rock had been coming along. 
Um, but really, when I really dug into the story more and more, um, I began to see how this played out. For example, one of the things that I've talked about, I wrote an article for Ultimate Classic Rock, was that in 1977, Warner Brothers' art department decided it would be a great idea to try to, I would suggest, imitate The Clash's first album cover by putting those guys in a dark situation, sort of lit up, um, and basically create a punk rock album cover. In fact, that's something when I saw that, I started to realize that these guys were really up against it. Like, even their own record company was like, mm, yeah, we know Ted Templeman thinks you guys are great, but you know, we don't think we can market the band right. as a traditional hard rock band. Um, and as that stuff started to become more and more apparent in my mind. And I really started to go back and look at the chart performances of some of these bands that came out around the same time or were making albums. So Judas Priest, ACDC, Scorpions, all great legendary Hard sure. rock bands, heavy metal bands, whatever you want to say. But uh, as you talk about in the part, early part of the book, is that a lot of people, you really have to put yourself in that climate to realize that rock commercially was really on its way out. It was really not something that, like you said, it's kind of on its last leg. So if they had come along a few years earlier, they probably wouldn't have had so much trouble being signed. I, I think that's right. I mean, I think if... if you know, if you think about what was happening in 1978 with some of the which is crucial, rocks, like Black Sabbath, for example, yeah. that's the classic example. Is that you know Sabbath was definitely struggling. Zeppelin hadn't put out an album since Presence, and there was no um, no notion whether they were going to continue or what the, what the deal was um, in terms of. I know that there were rumors going around that Page's health wasn't that great. That's at the right. Time. That's right. Um, you know, there weren't a lot of what you would consider to be traditional hard rock, heavy metal, Led Zeppelin style, Black Sabbath yeah. style. Bands that were being successful. Now, like I say in the book, Foreigner, for example, huge, huge band, um, but they are very, very radio friendly yes, in a way that yes. in some ways that Van Halen wasn't radio friendly. Van Halen was much more aggressive with the screams and the guitar right. playing. Um, Just more originality, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, and Boston too. Boston's another band. I mean, hugely successful. So I don't know if I would say that rock music was on the way out, but certainly the style of music that Van Halen was playing, emphasizing the, the guitar pyrotechnics, the over the top singing by the lead right. singer strutting around on the stage in the leather pants. I mean, right. a lot of people were like, this is over. Yeah. This is done. Disco, punk, um, all these other musical forms seem to be much more commercially either uh, have more potential or be more successful. In the case of disco, I mean, disco is massively, as we know, massively successful commercially. Do you think it was a conscious effort on perhaps, you know, you know, David Lee's got he's kind of the architect for, mm -hmm. the, for the presentation, obviously. Do you think that it was a natural thing to incorporate all those influences around him—the the punk, the the the, the 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 disco, and all—and obviously the influence—they're all influenced by by hard rock. Or do you think that you think it was a conscious decision, or do you think it was natural? You see what I'm saying? Like, 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 for example, you mean like, the evolution of the band's sound. Well, no, I mean, like, okay, like it's 1978. Like you mm -hmm. said, disco is bigger than rock at the, at the time. Absolutely. Okay, it's bigger than rock. So. I don't think that Van Halen or even David Lee was interested in being the savior of heavy metal. Mm -hmm. uh, or do you think it was, not that it wasn't real, but do you think they were like, well, wait a minute, what if we take pastiches of all these different mm -hmm. current things? Mm -hmm. Like in your, when you started doing these interviews, did anything like that start to reveal itself to you? You know, um, I, it's funny, I just put up a, I shared an article on my mailing list um, that I had something I didn't include in the book because it didn't really fit with the trajectory of the book's right, argument um, about how those guys dressed up like punk rock. I saw the picture, yeah. Right? And so there's this very funny incident that I had found out about in 1977. All these punk bands are in Los Angeles now. They're all kind of local LA punk bands. And so bands like the Ramones, Blondie are all coming through town at the Whiskey, and punk rock seems to be the um, 
the music that's really energizing people. Um, and so the three guys in Van Halen, uh, David Lee Roth, Alex, and Eddie, dressed up like punk rockers and posed as a punk band. Uh, the picture is fantastic. Yeah, I got to, and I, I recently found this picture. Someone sent it to me, and it, David Lee Roth had said that the picture had ended up in a punk fanzine called Slash. I didn't know it was Slash. He said it was in a fanzine. Interesting. Slash is a, you know one of the one of the legendary LA fanzines, right? Um, and so you know those guys were masquerading as punk rockers, but on the other hand, I do definitely think, and I think it's a part of the historical record that those guys were at least responding to punk in some sort of way. So ain't talking about love. Eddie talked about how that was a punk rock parody. They were joking around, and you know he played this two chord riff, and Dave was maybe like, "Hey, we can do something with that." And they sort of got this to be this sort of this punk song, uh, Atomic Punk, was definitely Roth's answer to um, punk rockers. To say, yes. yeah, this is what we, you know, I'm the lyrically there was finally an answer. Yes, as right. Well. I'm going to answer to that. So there was that. Um, the other thing to say, and I was just actually talking about this on Twitter this morning, is that. Roth loved disco. Um, you know, when I first... Probably still does. <laughs> yeah, he does. I'm sure he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I started doing this research, one of the things that was really fascinating to me is I'd read these interviews with Dave um, where he'd say, you know, I love disco or whatever, you know, make these comments. And I always thought as a kid that it was tongue-in-cheek, that he was just joking around. I thought, well, he must be super into Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. And it really yes. turns out he really didn't love that stuff. I'm not saying he disliked it, but right. it wasn't like he would choose to be like, let's listen to Black Sabbath Volume 4, right, and right. car stereo when I'm cruising around L.A. And we'll get into the current yeah, uh, yeah. Van Halen right. right now, but the only thing I'll say about that right now is that seems to be what's kind of preventing new music to come out, even uh, even with the, the 2012 album, A Different Kind of Truth, was all the old demos, because he is really not interested in... In rock, and I'm not just quoting Eddie's piece on on Billboard that he did with Chuck uh, uh, Klosterman. Thank yeah, you. Right. Uh, but I'm referencing more of an interview that I read with uh, uh, Dave gave him around 2000, yeah. and where he's where he's subscribing to Beatport, and they did the jump remix yeah, yeah, and all yeah, that. Yeah. So that never really went away there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean I think that's and that's always been part of the to me the Van Halen secret sauce. I think so too. I love it. I don't have a problem with it. So um, you know, I think. If Eddie and Dave could get in the same room together for a period of time, I think they could write new music together. And that was a tweet that you sent out this morning, wasn't it? Because I read that, and I and I appreciate you saying that because I was like, "That's it right there." It's, I, and I believe that too. And so we we can wait to talk about that down the road yes. later in the conversation. Of course, but, um, you know that was the thing. And so Roth brought a pop sensibility to Van Halen, yes. and you know, sort of this this idea of quote unquote saving heavy metal. I mean, I don't want people to think that I'm saying like. Van Halen is the same type of heavy metal band as Iron Maiden. I mean more that they sort of carried the torch in a time when people were like, this stuff is uncommercial. And nobody I think if you read the book, you'll get this. it. Yeah, nobody wants to listen to this stuff. Nobody wants long guitar solos anymore. Nobody right. wants a, like a screaming Deep Purple, because Roth did, did sort of sing like a little bit like Ian Gillen, no doubt yeah, about it. Sure. No one wants that anymore. We want like you know, this AOR, yeah. smooth music, and um, other types of music are more popular. And so I do think that um, putting those two things together, you know, that's where you get stuff like Dance the Night Away. Which is a pop song, you right. know. Um, you know, I think Eddie and Alex said they'd come up with that riff in 1975. Without Roth, it would have turned into some sort of like Black Sabbath type song. Really, sure. yeah. Um, you know, and Roth sort of said, "No, we're going to make this more of a salsa beat, and we're going to do something different with this." And that was the the things together. And so that's really, to me, what saved heavy metal in my argument of the book is that they allowed people to lobe and look and go, "Huh." A, Certainly, a band that we would recognize, at least in all of its architecture, as a heavy metal band. Screaming vocals, the black leather, the right. huge guitar amps, the incredible guitar solos, all of that stuff. That stuff's commercially successful. Yes. Um, they released four singles from Van Halen, four Warner Brothers released. Um, by any measure, 
that is a massive success. Yeah, of the album. Absolutely. Course, 10 sure. million records later, we can all say it's a success. But I mean, out of the gate. Yeah. You know, they didn't sell um, immediately in the first month it was released. It wasn't like it went straight to number one. But they built, they built, they built. And by the end, when you're in September and you're still releasing singles from an album that yes. came out in February, no one can look at it and go, this stuff's not commercially viable. Right. I mean, yeah. Van Halen was commercially viable. Well, you and also, it's funny too because, like, the age old uh, argument about Van Halen was would the album have been as successful just based upon the monstrous musicianship alone, or was the whole package? But, but we, of course, we want, we want to get back to the book here. Uh, is the, uh, okay, hey, we're talking with Greg Rinoff here, author of Van Halen Rising, how a Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal. We're actually sitting here in downtown Tulsa, uh, where Greg cur- uh, currently lives right now. Uh, and we're, what we're talking about in this next segment here, what we, how we want to progress this is that when you, this is your project. This, again, this project didn't come to you. This is your project. Right. And and what and this is what I love so much about it is that you uh, showed almost the same you know the, the kind of the same uh, you know uh, elbow grease to make this thing come to fruition and I and I think that the success of the book for anybody that you know whenever you read it whatever is that it really puts you in a time and a place that truly does not exist anymore at all and so when people go. To see Van Halen in 2015, what are they there for? Other than to hear the hits, other than to see if they're going to get along, all the obvious stuff. What do you, what do you think the relevancy of Van Halen is? You know, I think there's a number of things you can think of in terms of the relevancy today. I think number one, the song catalog is pretty unparalleled. Um, Van Halen could do all quote-unquote hits. And they really did that in 2007. That's what they did. Like, basically did, like, all of their hits. Um, you're seeing this tour and more of a deep um, back catalog type of thing. We're going to dig deeper thanks to Wolfgang. Yeah, um, I yeah think very there. much thanks to him. <laughs> I think, yeah, definitely. So I think they're there for, for the songs. I also think they're there to see, first of all, Eddie Van Halen. Um, you know, I consider myself to be a, a mediocre guitar player, but I certainly am a student of Eddie Van Halen uh, and someone who started me playing guitar as a teenager and uh and i'm not just saying this to say this i mean i think he's playing the best he's ever played certainly since they reunited with rock in 2007 i think eddie's ups and downs uh, in terms of his health and his wellness have been well documented he has not always performed on stage as well as he should have That's in my right. estimation in the last 20 years um, but he certainly is unbelievable right now and if anyone is on the fence about whether to go i would urge them to go just to say like have you I, seen the current tour live? Yet? I haven't yet. I'm going to see them in Dallas when they come through Dallas. That's my plan. Well, we'll and, see. We'll see it together. Yeah, then. yeah. And so, um, you know, I've seen Clapton. I've seen Beck, and I'm glad to say that I've seen Eddie Van Halen. Um, I think that anybody who's a fan of rock guitar, I don't care if you're you're 12 and you play guitar, or you're 60, you should be going to see Eddie Van Halen play guitar at least once in your life. And this right now, you're seeing him better than he played in 2007. And, for sure, I saw him in 2007, and I did too. Better. Really good. Um, it's good, good to know because because we all know that it kind of went downhill in 2012. Yeah, there, and I think I think there was. I mean, I just think that there's been struggles. I mean, I think Eddie's had some some struggles, and yeah. I, he's been in really really good health, and really looks like he is um, again smiles on stage. I mean, I think the other reason people are there are certainly to see Dave. I mean, I think Dave is somebody who will go down in history as a cultural force who changed rock music. Changed the culture. I mean, I don't think there's any question about that if you look at what he did with Van Halen. And then afterwards, um, certainly his solo career had its ups and downs, but um, 
well, crazy from the heat EP. I mean, yeah. you think about the idea of a guy who was in a hard rock band like Van Halen, right? We're just talking about heavy metal and, and, and doing uh, Beach Boys and Louis Prima and topping the charts. I mean, that's pretty incredible if you think yeah. about that. Yeah, it really is. Um, Roth is an artist. I don't mean just sort of like an artiste. I mean, he is a, he draws, um, he writes. He is, I mean, he is somebody who I think will, when we look back, there will be uh, people from the 70s onwards who really changed the face of rock music and changed the culture and Roth is one of them I think the other thing very quickly is that people want to see Eddie and Dave together on stage yeah but That's- I mean but besides the drama though right I mean I mean, maybe there's some people that watch you know Indy 500 for the Rex right or people go there to see if they're going to get along and and we certainly live in a in a, in a culture that is dr- very drama driven but like I said I really think that that like what you said, and the reason why I asked that question, okay, is to bring you because I was gonna, I wanted to, I wanted to just to read something out of the book here just for a second here, and I had, I had earmarked it here, turn here, because we talked earlier is that I think people are really wanting to come because they're there for the wet t-shirt contest. Do you know what I mean? You know, I don't have hyperbole, you know, now, but you know, talk, you know. Everyone knows that that awesome David Lee Roth quote where he goes, yeah, I just look at this whole thing as this like one big wet t-shirt contest because as Greg mentioned earlier, that's was one of the first gigs uh, was inspired by that. How perfect. So, but uh, you were, here it is. You were talking about people coming to see Eddie. Okay. This is from, this is from the book. If you don't mind, I'm just going to read one paragraph. It says, before I saw him play, I'd heard of him like everybody did. You hear about, about a guy locally. Uh, in 1975, Tracy G. was an introverted 16-year-old from the L.A. suburb of La Puente. He remembers that Van Halen was playing backyards, little halls, and parties around the San Gabriel Valley. And so you were hearing about him. Oh, you've got to check out this band, Van Halen. You've got to check out this guitar player. Tracy, who'd one day serve as metal legend Ronnie James Dio's guitarist, was skeptical. He already had his local idol, Donnie Simmons, a Jimmy Page lookalike who strapped on a low-slung Les Paul and played searing, bluesy solos for the hard rock cover band Stormer. Okay, the importance of that right there is there is hard to find anybody that plays guitar, whether at any level, that has not somewhat been influenced by, by Edward Van Halen. Oh, yeah. You know, and so that's back to the book. So... The important thing is the musicianship. Is that you've got David Lee Roth flying all over the, the place, and it's, it's craziness. But people were hearing this record before, you know, the internet, and the saturation, and not being it's like not being able to even air drum to Neil Peart's drumming. Something mm-hmm. there's you know Neil Peart has some drum parts that you literally can't even air drum to, uh, and so people were hearing this, and they're not oversaturated, right. being able to look at it, and I, and so. Don't you think that in what this book talks about a lot is it imagine is seeing that comparatively? You're used to seeing a level of musicianship when you have paid for it that is out of reach. The book goes into great detail that people were seeing this like your brother's band, or hey, you got to come, and that's why I said, hey, you got to go see this guy. Well, you know what? We all have friends we like to support, but going and seeing that. And seeing Eddie Van Halen at age what, what was he eighteen, nineteen, mm-hmm. for two bucks, and, and like you would go see a local band, right? And this is and then, yeah, this is started even early. I mean, in the book, I take it goes back even all earlier, the way yeah. to bands called a band called Genesis, which is like we're talking nineteen seventy one, nineteen seventy. So Eddie is like sixteen, fifteen. 
I had people today, adults. I mean, these are people who are you know <laughs> have lived their lives. They are sixty years old. Who said, I went to this park in Pasadena and I saw this guy play better than Leslie West played at the Forum, right? Better right. than Jimmy Page played in their estimation. And um, you know, as it goes on, and so you know, Tracy G is one of the people I interviewed. I really was interested in not only and again sort of getting the stories, but I really wanted to capture that Eddie Van Halen. Um, lightning bolt that hit people. Yeah. You know, imagine, you know, you go to your local skateboard park and uh, Tony Hawk comes down and yeah. starts doing that, this incredible. And you're like, what? what? Who, wait a minute. Right. This is not possible. Right. That's the way um, people saw it. This is not, how is it possible that this kid who nobody knows about who's playing this great? I mean, it's like, you know, sort of discovering Picasso for the first time before he's famous. It's just that's like, right. you're like, wait a minute. You're, no one's supposed to paint like this. You're supposed to paint yeah. a portrait that's supposed to look like this. Now it looks like this. And so, guys like George Lynch, Mark Kendall, Tracy G, a number of other people, Rusty Anderson, yeah, yeah, who is uh, Paul McCartney's guitarist. I mean, these are people who have gone on to be successful guitarists themselves. In other words, they at least have the perspective to say, you know what, I've seen some good guitar playing. Yes, I'm a good guitar player. I'm not some sort of guy who did a bunch of bong hits back in 1970. Right. Confused about this. They, Mark Kendall from Gray White, told me he's like, you know, I was doing Robin Trower and a Bad Company solos, and I thought I was pretty good. And I go to this park and or a backyard party, and I see this guy doing all this crazy stuff. He said I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I mean they couldn't. They That's go right. home, and you're like, how is this possible? Right, right. It's like Michael Jackson doing the moonwalk. It was right. more like the right. moon landing. Right, you know what right. I mean? It's like Michael Jordan comes down to your park and starts dunking with all these dunks you've never seen before. Right, sure, and sure. That was, and that was the impact. And again, the word spread, and that's part of what ends up happening is that more and more people hear about this, and of course, Van Halen's local reputation begins to grow. So by 1976. 1975, you know, people people of our, outside of Pasadena have heard about Van Halen because they played enough people are sort of word of mouth. Right. But again, this is all flyers, this is word of mouth. There's no the work said, there's no internet, there's no not, no yeah. radio stations playing Van Halen, there's no magazines profiling Van Halen. That's right. And they're still drawing 2,000 people because the girls cast such a white day because the girls like Dave right. and all the nerdy guitar player right. guys are like, you can't, right. you get. Right. So before, you know, and of course, you know, the punk rock guys were really good about their work ethic, but attracting 2,000 people in 1976, 1977, right. uh, during the decline of commercial rock, it speaks for itself, right? right? And, and, that's, and that's the other thing, too, is that, you know, Tracy talks about it in this book. He said, you know, even from the beginning, people had questions about Ross' vocal ability. And I, I want to take this opportunity to really remind people, if you think about guys like Ian Gillen, if you think about Paul Rogers, these guys are, are legendary vocalists who we listen back and go, these guys are the great rock vocalists of the 70s. Right. So you, you have a band with a guitar player that people are saying, God, this guy's better than Jimmy Page or as good as Jimmy Page, whatever they were saying, right? To, in, their, in the minds of the local kids are saying, this guy is an incredible talent, which he was. And they look at Roth and they go, you know what? His vocals aren't, they don't measure up, right? right. He's not that good of a singer compared to these other singers. I mean, who could be, right? We're not expecting a local kid in the backyard to sing as well as uh, as a, a guy who sold 10 million records. But that aside, as Tracy G points out in the book, you know, it didn't matter. Roth was great with the people, got the girls to come. He knew how to put on the show. He was he was he also helped those guys craft a more commercial sound. I mean, and Roth yes. grew. One of the big arguments in the book I try to point out is that Roth grew into being a successfully a, a successful rock vocalist. I mean, he did on Van Halen 1, there's no question. He created a vocal persona for himself, which we look back on that as a tremendous vocal performance, and he made himself a star. Take this opportunity right now, because I am among my friends, and among my people, I'm the Van Halen guy. Right. But you, 
now, if we were to be social, uh-huh. well, you would be the Van Allen guy. Right. And so I want you right now. Everyone knows this. Everyone, everyone seems to also have an opinion. Right. If you can, I'm not going to make you make five, but like a small list here right now. Take this opportunity to something that just bugs you, debunk it right now. Give me five things. About? Get, okay, number one, like, okay, well, you, you started with one just now when you said about the Dave Lee Roth thing about, right. well, you know, you know, we're not going to talk about. You're not allowed to even talk about Sammy Hagar during this podcast. But uh, but what I mean is, that in all seriousness, like I'm not interested in the yes, but Hagar was a better guitar, a uh, better vocalist, or yes, but so and so. No, right. like what is the popular opinion that people always seem to have an opinion of that is absolutely not true that you can that you can back up right now. Um, this that, will be well, here's here's a good example that uh, that Ross father. Bought them their success. I've heard people say that. And I thought that was always kind of a crazy thing, as if like David Lee Roth's father, by the way, became a very wealthy person. But as if that right. means if you're wealthy, you can call up Warner Brothers and like get a VP on the phone and say, "Hey, sign my son's band," and the person will say, "Sure." Right. There all there um, might be something almost am- anti-Semitism about that statement as yeah, well. You know, I, you know I, I, it's, here's the thing about Roth. I, I want when you read the book, um, you know, Roth's father. Roth's parents split in the early 70s, and Roth goes to live with his father, and his father becomes a very successful optical surgeon, and there became one of the top ones in California, and probably in the whole United States. And so he became, his father became increasingly wealthy, and he just was successful. And so um, that aside, um, beyond having a good place for those guys to practice, I don't really know how that would have helped um, Van Halen get a record deal. Because I will tell you as well, one of the things I try to illustrate in the book is that there are... um, numerous examples I give in the book of other record companies, other record executives who were basically handed Van Halen on a silver platter going, here, take these guys. Yes. And they said no. And so if Roth's daddy was the guy who was sort of helping to build Van Halen, like to basically get them a record deal, he's doing a very bad job. Right, right. <laughs> a terrible job. Well, the book the book definitely debunks that, but I also want people as like a little teaser about, you know, to, to have them dive into that. Yeah. And I, and I love that you said that because... One thing I love about this book so much is because even when you, as a music industry veteran, okay, who I've worked in the music industry for almost 20 years in some capacity or some other, I love that it's like in the, even if you play guitar like Eddie Van Halen, you still have to jump through four or five years of bureaucratic horseshit in order to. Sorry, iTunes. Uh, to uh, thank you for not cussing, by the way. You haven't cussed once. Thank you. Uh, is uh, is uh, uh, you know to have to get through that, and I, and I. So this is almost like you know it kind of illuminates that a lot too, which I enjoyed. Okay, give me another one. Give me give me something else. You know, people always want to talk about you know Wolfgang. What's his son and Michael Anthony? What what in your journey did you learn that that you could talk to somebody that would give that very overstated generic opinion that you could debunk? Well, I mean, I think the other thing to think about is that um, if you want to talk about Wolfgang, let's talk about a Wolfgang. Is that um, Michael Anthony almost certainly got the gig in Van Halen in a large part because he had a great voice. Right. And so there's been a lot of talk about, well, that's not, it doesn't matter. Um, and this is not meant to be any sort of knock on Wolfgang. Um, there's been, I sort of see on Twitter occasionally people sort of discounting Michael Anthony's contributions in that way. Um, I will tell you that one of the things that Roth had as a vision for the band was to have more of a pop sound as we talked about. And right. he saw the way to do that was by Integrating Motown slash Beach Boy style harmonies, right? And when they saw the so what ends up happening is the Van Halen brothers and Roth end up seeing Michael Anthony perform at a gig they were playing on 
um, with a different bass player, they see Anthony sing like that, the light bulb goes off. Yeah. Um, certainly in all of their heads, because Michael Anthony was a good bass player. But I think really the thing was that, that grabbed those guys was that we need to have a great background vocalist. Right. And he was always sort of a mediocre background vocalist. And he, you know, he self-admitted. He said, I'm not a very good singer. Um, and so when they brought that voice into Van Halen, as Roth has described it as sort of their own little version of Earth, Wind, and Fire's background vocals, that was that was huge. And that yes. was a huge part of those guys being able to do that pop sound um, successfully. And when you see and listen to those Van Halen early records and you see Michael Anthony background vocals, listen, one of the other things I would tell you that's an interesting thing to, to uh, add on to this is that I uh, had conversations with Ted Templeman and he told me that he oftentimes on the early Van Halen records doubled Michael Anthony's vocal part. In other words, he had Eddie sing backgrounds, maybe Dave and Alex were singing backgrounds. They would all sing them together, whatever it was. And then he would do another track of vocals and have Michael sing the background. Right. In other words, just sweeten it up. That was the voice that made that sweet. Again, it was the whole the harmonies together, but they, you know, you listen and you can hear that certain voice. Um, and, and so, then in that interview that David Lee well, talked about the other one about the DJ thing, he is the only time I've ever seen him or really anybody besides Sammy Hagar defend Michael Anthony. Because, I mean, what are you yeah. going to do? Defending Michael Anthony is, by and large, somewhat, I guess in the eyes of Eddie, is attacking his son. Right. Uh, right. I want to disclaim right now that I think that Wolfgang Van Halen is not only one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter, is a not a tag-along. He's a no, vital... No. In fact, no. I would go as far to say that his mediation sure. and his and is why this has not slipped off the face of the earth. Uh, there's no question about it. And then, and I again, I have not seen the set list, and if anybody runs it for me, we'll, we'll <laughs> be in trouble. But I also know that whatever deep cuts I might get to hear on this tour is all thanks to Wolfgang Van Halen. We're talking with Greg Rinoff here, with Van Halen, who's wrote a book called Van Halen Rising, Tulsa native. And uh, it's called How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. And our final segment today, what we're going to talk about which, with Greg, can kind of continue what we were saying here, is that take me now into the process. Yeah. Because you, it took more than just your own wherewithal. You had to turn this project and convince somebody else to publish it. How did you do that? Yeah, so... Um you know, you can self-publish today, as we know. I mean, I think that's one of the amazing innovations that's come with the internet is that you can self-publish or release your own music. Um, but I really wanted to make sure this book was able to get the best and biggest audience possible. And so what ends up happening is that I put together, um, let's say I wrote maybe 40% of the book. And then what I ended up doing was I ended up um, writing a book proposal. And so that is really a marketing plan for the book. And right, it has, sure. has a sample chapter. It has... Um, books that are like your book and then is an effort to try to convince presses to purchase your book basically make sure it's on a contract with you and so it went around um i I think that one thing that what gave some people pause with is they said well can we get some presses that will remain nameless was that um can we get eddie and dave to sign on to this and i said um you know to be honest with you eddie doesn't even want to do an interview with rolling stone magazine what makes you think that eddie van hamlin's going to want to write a book with with me he hasn't even written a book himself um, and the idea of getting both those guys to do that, um, it wasn't in, it wasn't in the card. So I think the fact that it was not a quote unquote band endorsed, authorized, right. official history, it makes it know, kind of seem a little. Well, you know, I think initially, I think the the like the case I tried to make to people, and I think when people read the book, they will see this. I, I would have loved to. I, I um, offered, asked David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen if they would talk to me. They both declined. I talked to Michael Anthony as I mentioned. Right. Um, 
And I would have loved to have talked to them for the book, make no mistake about that. But this let me tell the story in the way that I wanted to tell it. And I think also allowed me to fill in a lot of holes that if I had just relied on band members to write yes, the story. Absolutely. You know, like anything else, I mean, ask, ask yourself, um, what was high school like? Let's talk about high school to anybody. You know, they might be able to talk yeah. for 30 minutes, 40 minutes about high school, but you've got 20 other people in the room who went to high school with you. They're going to say, what about that time you did this? Yeah. And they're going to say, what? I don't even remember that. You were prompting them, you know? Right. And so when I asked, you know, when I was trying to get multiple, I mean, literally dozens and dozens of perspectives, what my idea was to say, look, what if I can get 10 people who went to this backyard party right. to tell me about it? What if I can get the kids who threw the backyard party to tell me about it? Not just that's, 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 not just yeah. does David Lee Roth remember the backyard party? Now he might, he might not. Um, you know, to him, maybe it was a big deal, maybe it wasn't. And so, um, in in having to get over that hurdle, that was that was definitely a challenge. But I, what I wanted to also make the case is that look, you have arguably one of the top two to three most important American hard rock heavy metal bands since the 1980s and 70s, yes. arguably. I said, nobody knows anything of substance in any detail about how they became Van Halen. That's and that's right. how I tried it's to true. It. And so they come out of the, you know, they come out of nowhere in 1978. By the summertime, they're playing these festivals. In September, they do their crate stunt where they jump out of the airplane. Um, I talked to, uh, had a great conversation with Marshall Burl about this, who was in on all of this plotting and do this. They jump out of the airplane at Anaheim Stadium. They steal the show for Black Sabbath. And people are like, where, where did this band come from? Yeah. Who are these guys? Yeah. Um, you know, that's all that stuff that made them be able to do that stuff happened before 1978. In other that's words, right. the great musicianship. You understand, you know, if, if you can jump out of an airplane, but if you're a bad live band, no one's going to care. Yeah. So you have to have both. And, and you, you know, you had the songs, you had the whole the whole package. And I want to know, how did they make this great album? Yeah. Arguably the greatest rock debut in history. Absolutely. Um, and go through Appetite Destruction, Boston, go through the other ones. But how did this happen? That's but, but, it's, but it's part of that conversation. And so in working with great people at ECW Press, um, the folks there saw it my way. And I'm really glad to be working with them. They're great press. Well, this is what I wanted I wanted to say for me as a consumer. This is what I want to say to the, to the people that are listening. Is I love, obviously, Van Halen, but I also I love these, you know, I love rock books. And But what I hate is when you go to the newsstand or whatever medium you choose to purchase this book, you should purchase it. And here's why. Because I am also, uh, you know, a big fan of, you know, Prince and a bunch of people. I'm very, you know, the Runaways. We, we could probably have a whole other podcast on what's going on with them right now. Uh, and I'm actually going to have Cherie on uh, in October. I mean, um, is that when you go to the, the bookstore, the newsstand, whatever, and you see, uh, you know, Whatever, like uh, fair warning, the unauthorized history of Van Halen, or or still raining, purple rain. You know, it's you can smell that shit from a block away. This, ladies and gentlemen, not that it needs my defense, uh, is not one of those books. This is written by somebody who is an historian, who is well written, who is clearly loves this man, who has done his homework. Uh, and when you see this, the cover alone. Uh, which uh, it'll be up on, on the website. You'll be able to see. Uh, it's just a fantastic book, Greg. Now, are we going to be able to talk about the release here of the book now, or can we yeah, can, can I mean, we talk a little I, about that a little bit? Yeah, I've got some. Um, so the, the plan for launching the book, I'll tell you, there's going to be a launch in Pasadena. I want to keep some of the details of that, of course. Um, That's why everything's finalized. But yeah, there's going to be a, there's definitely going to be a book signing at Verlman's in Pasadena. Um, that's the one of the old historic bookstores in Pasadena. It's a great location. That'll be October 9th. That's the plan for that. I've got a couple of other things I'm cooking on, uh, working and cooking up for that uh, trip to California. I'll be also launching the book here in Tulsa. 
I expect that's going to be details for that will be uh, worked up pretty soon. And there'll be other other events as well. I'm hoping to get to some other cities, maybe Dallas. I mean, I'd like to get down there. Um, Anything, of course, I can do to help you. Help yeah, you be I part appreciate of that. that. Of yeah, it would be great. The um, the the book itself, yeah, it's going to be. I wanted to launch it in Pasadena, of course, um, perfect. Because and only because I'm, I'm really looking forward to shaking the hands of a lot of people who I've never met in person, right. who I talked to over the phone, um, and inviting with. them, and, and yeah, and I think, and I think, you know, for me, this is a story about again a world that's gone, like you said. Um, Kids today, you, you, you're not going to have a band in your backyard and invite 500 people. That's, that's not the way. Right. It's not, that's a, a world that's gone it for any gone. number of reasons. Um, but it, it was, I think, a like I said um, to somebody one time. It, you know, it was sort of like days to confuse, but these kids lived it. I mean, that's what it was. It was sort of like your parents are gone. That's right. Let's invite all my friends over and let's party. And you, you know, you want to always have the fantasy about the rich kid who hires Van Halen to play. Right. There's a kid in there just like that who did that in 1974 right. in March. Uh, his parents lived that in this gigantic part of mansion. His parents lived in this. I don't want to spoil it. His parents lived in a gigantic mansion in San Marino, California, which is one of the Tony suburbs of Los Angeles. And he had well over a thousand people. People say it was up to two thousand people in his backyard um, for Van Hill. Yes. Okay. So now uh, the release date is October first. October first. Okay. So the first week of October, like I said, it will be released uh, uh, in Pasadena. There will be many, many more details to come. Uh, Greg, uh, tell them how they how they can contact you, how they can contact the book, how they can get hold of you on sure. Twitter. Please go sure. to all that now. I'm at Greg Renoff. So that's G R E G R E N O F F on Facebook. It's just Facebook backslash Van Halen Rising, all one word. Um, you know, hook up with me that way. I'd love to meet with people and chat with them online. Absolutely. Now, one more question, because you mentioned how, do you, you know, maybe not for the book, but have you ever had any, because I promised people on Twitter I would tell this story, and when this we'll, we'll close with this, but I, uh, have you ever had any interaction as a 10-year-old kid or as a 30-year-old adult, have you ever met David Lee Roth or Eddie Van Halen? No, but I'll tell you how I got the closest to doing that. This is a good story, actually. Good, okay. Um, Okay, and you should tell yours, and I'll tell mine, and that's how okay. I win. Okay, good so um, in 1984, as I mentioned, it's it's late March, early April, 1984. I had a ticket to see Van Halen on a Monday. So it was Monday, April 2nd, 1984. That weekend, my father took me to a baseball card convention. My father was a big baseball fan and um, recently passed away, so this is, a, this is a poignant memory for me to share. Oh, good, um, good. March, Thank you for that. Um, March, that Saturday, that last Saturday in March, he takes me to the Meadowlands Hilton. Now, just coincidentally, um, I'm in the lobby of the hotel. I'm, again, I'm 14, 15 years old. I hear these kids talking, and they're going, Van Halen's here. Van Halen's here. And I stopped, and I don't know these kids. And I look, and I'm listening, and I sort of get up my courage. These kids are a little bit older than me. And I said, what do you mean Van Halen's here? And they said, Van Halen's up on the 14th floor or something like that. Right? They're up on the 15th floor of the hotel. And so what Van Halen had done is actually they had camped out at the Meadowlands Hilton. They were going to play Madison Square Garden, and they were going to play the Meadowlands in New Jersey, and so they just decided to, to basically be in the hotel for five days while they were, did this big stand in New York, New Jersey. Okay. So one kid goes to me, we're going to go up there. We're going to go up. Try to see David Lee or whatever he said. Right. I was like, okay. Like, and I was like, you know, my dad doesn't know where I am, right? And so I'm, I'm like, okay. So we, we, we get in the elevator, and we go up. And so the floor is like, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, ding! And the doors open. And I see all these people walking around. Lots of kids, look like kids to me. Maybe they're probably old, like they're like 18, 19, 20 year old, like, right. you know, young adults or whatever, walking around, beers in their hand. Like they're walking down the hallway of the Hilton with Budweiser's. And we're still in the elevator and we're like, 
door is going to close, so one of us probably stuck our arms to open the door <laughs> open. So we start to walk out, and as soon as we stepped basically across the threshold into the hallway, this giant roadie steps in front of us with his big hair. He's wearing this flannel shirt. He's like, get back in that elevator. Go back down right now and we sort of recoiled back against the wall and he said oh, oh I won't God. curse on your podcast he said you know tell your effing friends to stay down there too and like we just recoiled against the wall like something out of a cartoon <laughs> and the doors closed and we were like oh man push the button go down go down and uh, that was it that was as close as I got but to party with Van Halen that was it I was so- and when the doors opened I was so sure I was going to be able to just walk out of that elevator and be like partying with Van Halen. I was like, wow, these guys weren't lying. Look at all these girls. Yeah. Look at all these people. I, didn't, I, up, I just remember, yeah. But you, I got. at least you got to smell the party. <laughs> I came nowhere near that. Uh, but, but also I'm saying like you you had that Mark Wahlberg rock star uh, in the movie rock star you know all the days true, of confused yeah. kind of stuff uh, mine's a much not not nearly as cool as that but I, I'll tell you this my um, you know growing uh, up in, up in, in in Dallas, I'm actually going to reveal a little something for our listeners here. Is I actually was born in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, and the very first concert that I ever went to was David Lee Roth's "Eat 'Em and Smile." And I'll save you all. I'll say I'll save you all of the cliches of like after that night I was changed forever, and I knew I had to be a part of music in some way. But all of that is absolutely true. So when you hear people say that, I am a living testament that that is true, and I'm sure you are too. Uh, okay, so you know, obviously that year with Edom and Smile and all that was the greatest thing in the world. He had the greatest band in the world that year with... Um, okay, so, all right. So I always wanted to meet David Lee Roth. He's the one guy I want to go to a wet t-shirt contest with or whatever whatever capacity. And I managed to see David Lee Roth several times, solo, whatever, you know. Um, and finally, when he came out with that self-titled record that had all the... Uh, I think it was around 2002, I think, mm-hmm. when... Uh, and uh, anyway, I actually even had backstage passes in Dallas, Texas to go. And I thought, this is going to be my moment. Yeah, sure. And it was that thing where you go into the green room and he sends in the bass player that doesn't speak English, who was Japanese at the time, doesn't speak English, I forget his name now. Nice guy. And and then we were, you know, told to leave. So no meeting with David Lee. I In 2006, uh, or actually I guess I would say 2005 for New Year's Eve, I go to New York. To spend New Year's Eve in, in there, and I, there's a little tiny record store that's not there anymore, unfortunately. Uh, they're in the Lower East Side called Rocket Science. It's right next to the old St. Mark's Comics, and I went in there, and I'm a monstrous fan of the band Portishead, and I went in there, and they had this crazy, weird, whatever uh, DVD that I'd never seen before, mm-hmm. and I'd already spent all my money. And so, fast forward to March 2006, I was going up there on my birthday to interview uh, with a record label up there, where I eventually ended up getting the job and it was the greatest day of my life because I went to it was in New York and interviewing for a job and I knew I'd gotten the job and and so I was going to reward myself by going back to that record store to purchase the Portishead DVD at Rocket Science knowing I was going to be moving here in a few weeks and I go into the store and I walk in and immediately to my left is a guy. This is back when you actually had to hand the guy the, the albums or the the CDs, and he would play them for you before you actually could you know would purchase them. In there's a guy there, very nondescript. He's at the counter and he's listening to all of this music that he described as being Carib, meaning short for Caribbean. 
And he's talking to the guy and everything else in a very normal speaking voice. And I go to the back of the room, and, and this is important. I'm wearing a Miles Davis T-shirt. I'd just gotten a, a, a Bitches Brew T-shirt as a gift for my birthday. Birthday again was, was that day. And so I'm going to the back, and I'm looking around, and suddenly I hear from the counter this big booming voice. I know that voice. I know that voice real well. And so I somehow managed to manipulate a way to find myself at the counter by finding that Portishead DVD. It was still there. And I said, hey, can I take a look at this before I buy it? But the only reason why I did that, because I wanted to be standing next to the gentleman up there that I could confirm was David Lee Roth. And he's this in Roth Radio had just started, and he was in like the newsboy suspenders, very, uh, uh, you know, very incognito kind of thing. And he's sitting there and he's talking to the guy. Uh, he goes, yeah, this is very Carib, this. And he's describing all the music he's listening to and all this, you know, this uh, Caribbean kind of sounding kind of stuff that you would imagine he's into. And so anyway, so the guy is annoyed because he kind of knows what I'm doing. Not David Lee, but the, the clerk. And uh, he puts in the DVD so I can watch it with no sound. And I also forgot to mention that they were somehow talking about Miles Davis at the counter. So I thought, I'll show up with my Miles Davis shirt and I'll be in, you know, very cheesy and, and whatever. And so anyway, so he leans over to me and he says, hey, nice shirt, kid. And I said, oh, thank you. Still not acknowledging your David Lee and I'm just this lonely peasant. And he leans over and he, and he goes, hey, he goes, he goes uh, what is that? And, and I said, this is Portishead. And the clerk, very annoyed, butts and he goes, this isn't Portishead. This is, he goes, no, 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 not that. That. He was immediately, his attention was to the TV, and he taps me. He goes, what is that? And I said, oh, it's Portishead. And I find myself explaining to David Lee Roth in 2006 who or what Portishead is. And so, uh, you know, I made it very brief. And anyway, and this is what the, if you know the story, you know that after you leave, I made my purchase and I left. They still had some kind of purchases of, of things that they didn't mind people stealing. They were out out front, yeah, okay. Yeah. And I debated against it, but it was my birthday. I had just gotten the job. I got the Portishead DVD, and as he's exiting the store, I turn around and now I'm ignoring. I just go, "Hey, Dave," and he goes, "Yeah," and I said, "Hey, man." Uh, I just want to tell you today's my birthday, and you know I couldn't have I couldn't have asked for a better birthday gift than talking about music with you. And he goes, "What's your name, man?" And I said, "Roy." He goes, "Roy, have a great weekend." <laughs> and storms, you know, the 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 stores in St. Mark's, which is kind of like yeah, yeah. the, and he storms off into the New York night. And I, that was my own. I've never met Eddie or, or Alex yeah. or anybody else, but that was That's an awesome story. That was my. So the people on Twitter was, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of tease that I would usually be the one telling the story. It's your book, yeah, but no, uh, it's a great story. But I'll tell you that if you like that story, there is nothing uh, that I have or even that story that compares to the stories that are in this amazing book that our, that our, our friend Greg Renoff here has, has has written. So again, the book is Van Halen Rising: How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy metal. Greg, I can't thank you enough for, for being with us this week. So excited uh, for uh, for the release and for everybody out there to be able to get it, get their hands on it. Uh, and stay tuned like, like Greg said, uh, he, Twitter is just Greg Renoff, G-R-E-G-R-E-N-O-F-F uh, VanHalenRising.com uh, can be found at ECW uh, Press on October the 1st. Uh, Greg, did you have anything else you wanted to add there, sir? Just appreciate it. I really am uh 
just glad to be able to share the story with everybody, and I'm, I'm glad that people like you have dug it. I mean, it's great. You got to read it a little bit earlier than I did. little bragging rights, and it's great. And thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Greg, so much. Okay, so Rich there, did you learn a few things? Is it going to start? Okay, cool. Awesome. Okay. So anyway, so yeah, so uh, the, um, okay, so yeah, so the party, the book is going to be released again on October the 10th, which is uh, David Lee Roth's birthday. Right, That's also, right. isn't that a big day for you as well? Oh, absolutely. Uh, wedding anniversary. Well, well, happy anniversary to you and <laughs> Melanie. You, happy birthday to David Lee Roth. And again, congratulations to Greg Renoff for writing such a great book. And uh, again, the party's going to be on October the 10th at T. Boyle's Tavern in Pasadena, California. And what's even cooler about that, man, is that they're going to get this band uh, that I have been following and been filming for my own documentary about. Awesome. Uh, they're called Fan Halen. And let me tell you something right now, boss. We. Um, uh, I don't know if you've seen any of the tribute bands. You'll have to come see them next time. But yeah, yeah. I, we uh, we looked at about seven or eight different one of these tribute bands for, mm-hmm. for Van Halen because we wanted to do one on you know, my favorite band. Right. And these guys have got it. And they're from Pasadena. Nice. Uh, and they have it. And so I'm so – it's just such a weird way that mine and Greg's world collided like this with mm-hmm. him writing this fantastic book and the band that he got. I had nothing to do with him hiring them. It was just a coincidence. But right. But I'm going to be there, and I'll be there filming it. Uh, so if you come down to the party and you see the guy with the camera come up and say hi, uh, you can find uh, the book also on uh, the, the Twitters. Uh, I believe it's at Van Halen Rising, or just the at symbol Van Halen Rising. It's also available through ECW Press. Again, uh, October the 10th. Uh, and then you can reach us um, at uh, trickykid.com. We'll also be giving away because uh, it's not open to the public. It is, a, it is a private party there on October the 10th. So you will have to actually have an invitation and we'll be giving away a pair. Uh, so you, you want to follow us on Twitter at trickykid2 and find out more information at trickykid.com. That's www.trickyky hyphen kid. Uh, dot com, and so hopefully we'll see you in Pasadena October the tenth again uh, for my co-host Rich Simmons. Thank you, mm-hmm. Rich. No problem. Uh, I am Roy Turner, and we thank you so much for joining us on Tricky Kid Radio, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>